Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of the Pardes Parsha podcast features Rabbis Mish Hammerkasoy and Alicia Anchelevitz on Parshat Noah. For the latest episode of the Parsha podcast, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbis Mish Hammerkasoy and Alicia Anchelevitz. Rabbi, Rabbi Dr. Alicia Anchelovitz, how are you today? Thank God. Thank God. Baruch Hashem. How are you doing, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy, on this beautiful Isr, Isru Chag? <laughs> Thank God. I'm great. You know, what's great is that you and I were discuss- were assigned, and I promised that I did not request this at all. Actually, I requested a different partial, but for whatever random reason, I was assigned um, to do the podcast on Parshat Noach. And that turned out to be really um, fortuitous for me because my husband just got his first book contract for his first book of poetry. Um, I know, isn't it great? I'm so proud of him. And his book happens to be called The Book of Noah. So (laughs) (laughs) it's Perfect. And uh, what do you want to hear one of his poems? Sure, please, please. Yes. Okay. So this one's called Dear Noah. The days stack like coins on a scale and summer tips toward another end. You feel it in the August heat. You hear it in the blur of cicadas, burr of cicadas, and flap of sparrows snatching grapes from a stunted vine in the garden. I used to think people talk about weather because they're afraid of silence. But what did you say when you came in for dinner? Sawdust on your shoulders and stuck in your beard and your wife said, please, that's enough. Don't tell me your generation refused to see the towering anvil clouds even after it started raining and I won't tell you it's too late for mine. I'm trying to find a voice that doesn't push away, that hews close to beauty but my optimism has become like a last rhino in captivity. We have forests and towns that combust under a fist of sun. We have mosaics of dread laid one Teresa by one. We have satellites winking far above, supercomputers predicting short-term doom and long-term destruction. I'm calling out to you, Noah, because you saw everything wash away and begin again because I want to know if there's more to do now that to do now than build a bigger boat and keep a neater zoo. Yoni Hammerkasoy, what do you think? <laughs> I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful. Well, what, you're the one that's reading it. So, <laughs> so that's your husband and Yoni, and um, he mentions a wife there. So uh, what do you think about it? <laughs> I, okay, so I'll admit that one of the things I like about this poem is that he's wrestling with me getting sick of hearing about his impending predictions of doom. Um, and he's trying to figure out how to predict doom in a way that's productive rather than really annoying. Um but mm. I think for me, in the context of Parsha Noah, coming back to it now, it gives me like a, it gives me a powerful new perspective on, on Noah, 
and how the challenge of what it must have been like for him trying to get folks to listen to him then. You know, according to the Midrash, 120 years passed from when God commanded Noah to build the ark until the flood actually took place. That's enough time for him to plant the forest, watch it grow, harvest the wood, and construct the ark. And and nobody listened to him. Nobody listened, right? Like they were hearing the news of impending world destruction and changing. Theoretically, they're going to change their wicked ways, but no. Um, and Amitrash says that even as the animals are parading onto the ark and the first drops of rain are starting to fall, that um, that the people are still mocking Noah. And I guess I'm those people that are still mocking my husband who's predicting environmental doom in some ways. And I think that that gives me, I don't know if it's because the situation now isn't that grave or because it's so hard to hear the calls to repent, but it fills me, at least myself, with like this huge sense of humility about, Mm -hmm. I actually don't know what's coming next. And it also fills me with a lot of compassion for the people in Noah's time who didn't know what or or didn't really hear all the signs that were out there um, that would have allowed them to spare the world from destruction. But, uh, like they didn't realize that Hamas, stealing, adultery, all those things are bad. I, but were they really so bad? I mean, how bad is one or two degrees Celsius? What's the big deal? And who says it's really the Hamas that's causing the world to fall apart? You hear what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. What do you mean? I, I mean, I guess I just imagine it's not so easy to see in the world cause, cause, and what what is actually the res- causing this symptom. That lots of things could be causing the symptom that's presenting. They see the world falling apart, just like we see the world, we see the floods in Pakistan, but we don't know what's really causing the floods in Pakistan, what's really causing, um, is it really an impending doom? Is it really going to be that bad? Or maybe it will be like the 1950s when they they predicted that everyone was going to be starving because there wasn't enough food. And that's the last problem that we have right now. There's plenty of food for everyone on this earth. So so, so you're saying that, you know, as opposed to like just reading the list of of classic list of Averot, Hamas, Gezel, stealing, um, new adultery, and so forth, reading that as a list, you're saying we should think beyond that narrow list right exactly yeah that brings me up or i don't know i don't know what they thought in the time i think my humility is that i don't know exactly what they were thinking at the time can i can i share a different thing sure um i you know i like to teach also think about the environment with parshat noah um and teach a class in social justice, where I taught for many years a class in social justice. And the early people, my early students were like, why do you want to put the environment in your social justice class? Because really all of the simple moral rulers that we have in our tradition, what's hateful to you, don't do to others, love your neighbor as yourself, humans are created, they all put human beings in the center. Um, And they don't really care about the, they don't seem 
to care about and social justice, of course, is social in its nature. They don't seem to put <laughs> human, they don't put the environment uh, as a value in and of itself. And it's obvious to us that the environment is, that it's important. Global warming matters because uh, it will be hard for humans to survive as the temperatures get ho- get uh, get hotter and harder. But does do we are we what it's called deep environmentalists in Judy in the Jewish tradition? The Jewish tradition has the the environmental tradition has this movement they call deep environmentalism, right. which means right. that it's not about the humans in the center, but it's about the flowers and the gorillas and um, and the almond trees are themselves valuable. Um, and I think that they have a point in general, but I like to point to in this week's parsha we have the seven mitzvot b'nei Noach, the seven Noahite laws that every human being is supposed is obligated to take care of to abut to obey. And there's two versions of them put forward in the Gemara. In um, there's a version that's learned from Parshat Bereshit um, that Vitzav Hashem Elokimet. Uh, the Lord commanded humans saying of every tree of the garden you may eat. And from there they learn you have to have a law system. You can't curse God. You can't do idolatry. You can't mm-hmm. commit murder. You can't steal. No sexual sins and don't eat um, a limb from a live animal. Those are the seven mitzvot that absolutely everybody does. But for, but Asher, a different group of Tanaim in the Gemara, um, have a slightly different group of the seven mitzvahs. They take out the demand for a law code and the and the prohibition of blasphemy as seven mitzvot that everyone has to do. And instead, they have Sirus and Kilaim. Um, how did you castration. say castration, castration and uh, and forbidden crossbreeding. And though that seven group of mitzvot are are derived from the flood, that is to say, God saw they saw that the world is being um, is being destroyed, and from the destruction they see that must be talking about a vote about idolatry or that. Um, Kishchit is talking about um, sexual sins. And so from the things that had gone wrong in the world, they understand what are the things that we're not supposed to do. And seven laws themselves are laws that fit or that emerge from nature rather than human constructs. And also in the capital punishment, the capital punishment for the, for according to the Rabbanan, the the primary group of Tanaim is, uh, off with the head, decapitation. But the the um, the capital punishment, according to Beim and Asher, should be chenek, um, strangulation, which is a reversal of um, It's like a revert. God gave put breath into us, and when we uncreate the world, God uncreates us. So there's this sort of sense that what dictates morality, according to Bey Menasheh, if we can talk about the Sheva okay. Mitzvot B'nai Noach, yeah. is, is the laws of nature in some ways. 
And the way we should understand what the world is about is looking at the natural world so mm -hmm. that wait, wait, deep wait, environmentalism okay. is in the center. Wait, so I just wanted to clarify. So when yep. you, your image, because I've never heard you say one of these points, um, when your image of um, of being intact, killing by chenek, by strangulation uh -huh. versus decapitation. So uh -huh. I'm hearing I'm hearing a resonation that you that you see that's connected to nature in a sense of everything should be intact as opposed to trying to uh, build court systems and then civilization and then chop off people's heads and so forth. Your your emotional contrast, whatever image contrast is, is nature and intact. Am I hearing you correctly? Right. I think that like God created human beings. God created us by breathing into us. And when it's time to uncreate us, strangle us, and we take that breath away. Um, so it's a sort of natural don't way. Don't It's a natural yeah. way of mm -hmm. undoing it. And that's the way creation is done and undone through nature's laws, which to me is indicating, it's a hint to this idea that nature doesn't exist to serve us as human beings and that human beings don't have to be in the center. Wow. Where does that hit you? Well, it hits me, it hits me as, <laughs> hits me as, okay, so I'm going to say two things. Hits me as very moving. Right? The sense of, you know, nature intact and nature kind of unblemished. It's, you know, we're human beings, hopefully. We're all human beings and we connect, you know, we connect to that. And it's powerful. That's one part of it. But now that we're like kind of bringing it to like, okay, what about the message for today and so forth? So there's a part of me that's a little wary about powerful messages. Um, <laughs> what do you mean? So... I think let's do two ways. I think first of all, the most important thing are consequences. I'll come back to Bay Menashe in a moment. And, and you know, two versions of what are the seven basic no hide, you know, rules or you know, sins. Um but but there are two ways to kind of approach the world. One is one is a more pragmatic consequence of there's a pain, I want to avoid the pain, or I want to help somebody else avoid the pain. Like there's and I want to help somebody else avoid the pain because I have a part of me that's sympathetic, empathetic, without escaping to great values, and all the more so without without escaping to like a great value of what life is about beyond beyond human or animal or just beyond suffering. What's about beyond pains? It's about something about intact nature. There's God, you know, you know, the wind, the ofanim in the morning are making noise in the skies and all that, which is all beautiful, right? But it's just fine. But like, you know, like, you know, I believe when, you know, I when I say those words, I put myself in that experience. But, but there's something I'm worried about about actually framing life that way, not about making space for that, but framing life that way. Um, kind of looking at at, at the story, of the marble attracts me. As, as destruction comes about because of the little things we do, and it's the little things we do that we can fix first. So, you know, Torah says Hamas, and then we have the list of, you know, stealing uh, sexual sins, which are classically harms to people, not just something called mm -hmm. morality. Um, 
uh, the need for courts, okay? Um, and then we can debate, um, you know, how important is it to start executing people in order to have law and order, <laughs> or maybe have law of Kilain, which is which is protects the topsoil, is when people start mixing. Sorry, I jumped. Kilaim actually makes sure there's enough wheat because kilaim occurs with great uh, vines and wheat when wheat fields are replaced by vines and then poor farmers are told by the rich owners to just sow wheat in between the vines. Um, so that, that that's like actually caring about people, having enough food production, all that, and then maybe death penalty, that's not so important. Maybe the positive side is more important. And that's a fascinating debate. But as far as I'm concerned, that's a debate about real life details. How do we manage life? What are the harms to people that we want to avoid or goods to people we want to create? And, and not kind of asking this larger question about the environment as this big, uh, deep environmentalism. Am I making so any you, sense? <laughs> and so I think what you're saying is that you don't care whether the world is... Deep, what's it? Deep environmentalism, the idea of putting nature in the center is mostly useful to you if it brings about consequences which cause humans to avoid doing harm to other humans. Right. So or, that. Or even animals, that's fine. Like, it's causing pain. Right. Correct. Right. If I were to now put God at the center and the God I put at the center weren't the God who says in, you know, in Hashemish Patim, keep a day of rest once a week. So that so that your animals will rest, and your slaves will catch their breath. But my image of God was somehow this all-encompassing glory in which I will find myself and so forth. And I would I would find that idolatrous. Like I would be worried about that. I'd be worried about that because it's we're no longer like actually checking the consequences of what we're doing. Um and actually gets in the way of the consequences. If I can go off the page and mention, not a poet, but Eleanor Ostrom. Eleanor Ostrom is a, 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 won a Nobel Prize in economics for being on the left side of the political spectrum for arguing that um, the commons can work. The classic model in economics, if you have land that's just public land, of course, it get destroyed if nobody owns it because nobody will take care of it. And mm -hmm. she argued, no, the commons can work, but the commons survive only on the conditions where people actually know each other enough, are interdependent of each other, develop trust with each other, and therefore everything she argues always has to start on a local level. Then you can have local groups combined with other meta-local groups, meta-local groups and so forth. And, but environment, let's say, cannot be addressed from the state down, definitely not internationally down. And she's on the left side of the spectrum. Of course, people on the right say that. But she says that without being, becoming a you know capitalist, um, and I think this, that she's right, that this, it's, we do this, we, I find that we escape to God, possibly, to, to, you know, deep environmentalism, we're escaping from the fact that, as you said earlier, we don't have good answers, and the only answers we can develop are if we start asking ourselves step by step, what can I do now, what can I do now, don't steal. Maybe also make sure there's enough food by not growing kilayim. Uh, like, and like actually do step by step and then learn from the previous step what worked to try the next step. But so and if I understand you correct, deep environmentalism is valuable to the extent to which it brings us um, 
to take small steps to stop harming, prevent harm to other sentient beings. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes. Just yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> One can be Eurasian by a god fear and worship God deeply, but then kind of ignore all the harms that they're causing. Right? Like, yeah, same thing. Yeah. So we're afraid if we think of God as na God is a nature as a stand in for God in that sense, like God has giving some sort of. I think I just heard you say two things. If you're just serving God and it doesn't prevent harm to humans and to other sentient beings, then there's something wrong. And if you're just serving nature and it doesn't prevent harm to human beings, then you're doing, then something's gone wrong in the way the religion is working. Is that what you're saying? So thank you. Yes, something's gone wrong. And it's not even, it's an escape. It's an escape and from actually addressing, working from experience step by step and actually addressing really many needs and harms because everything we do to fix the world is going to also have a price when we do harms along the way wow alicia you're really a consequentialist <laughs> because there's no way to be a virtue ethicist in your heart mostly to be feel virtuous if you know you're doing bad <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, yes, this is a really interesting conversation thank you for sharing with me what do you want us thank to you. take away um I always take away, I guess, that the that the that the big floods come from the fact that we don't actually take care of the step of the daily things of just what it means to be decent human being. And the more we do the decent human being things, the more we can expand it. But that's where it starts. Are we able to do those little Shavim Subhane Noah? And they grow into 613. But like, can we do first of all the Shavim Subhane Noah? What would you like to tell? Wow, well, I certainly would. <laughs> I could be really happy to take that away because that's already excellent. Um, and, but I think I would add to it a little bit of the power of the religious experience of mm. humility, both the humility of understanding how little we understand, either as the people that were surrounding Noah and not listening to him and the impending doom, or um, as those amongst us who are trying to understand that, uh, understand environmentalism from a deep perspective, that it's not just about what it does for human beings, but all, but that there's value in creations beyond ourselves. Even if you, I think there's a deep religious experience there. I can't disagree with you, however, that in the end, we want it all to come back to, uh, to not doing harm. And if it just stays, it doesn't abstract religious experience, then we've done something wrong along the way. This has been wow. a fun experience. This has been a Thank fun you. conversation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Shabbat shalom, Alicia. Shabbat shalom. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episodes of the Pardes Parsha podcast.